invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Just reminding you, uh, this letter is uh, written to a uh, group of discouraged, tired, uh, weary Christians. Life is hard. Circumstances are very difficult. And uh, they've sort of, uh, as uh, hard things tend to do, hard things draw our attention. And we lose sight of other things. If you have a, a sore somewhere on your body, uh, that's where your mind goes, uh, to that wound, that pain. And the, and the same is true for life. And, and what the writer of Hebrews is doing is, is just getting their eyes then off the difficulty of the circumstances, not ignoring them, not in any way denigrating the reality of the difficulty, but getting their eyes up, looking unto Jesus, and uh, giving, getting their eyes up to see all that they have in Christ. And that's how God's comfort so often works, so, that he doesn't remove the hard circumstance, but he re- puts that circumstance, reminds us of the context, that there are glories for us in Christ Jesus, and uh, that we can have joy and comfort and peace and confidence even in the midst of trials. And so uh, this morning, if you're weary, I encourage you, let the Lord lift your eyes up uh, to see the beauties and the glories uh, of Jesus Christ and, and the wonder, wonderful things that are true for you and uh, because of Jesus Christ. Let's give our attention to the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Just saying there that if Jesus was a priest uh, after the order of Aaron, he couldn't be a priest because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, he was from the tribe of Judah. So the law would have prohibited him from being a priest if uh, he were operating in the, um, the realm of the Aaronic priesthood. Chapter 7, he doesn't operate in that realm, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Continue on. They, that is the Aaronic priesthood, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of the, a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. God in heaven, we come now to this letter of encouragement. I pray that you would give us ears to hear by your spirit, that we, Lord, would understand the things of God and that we would be comforted, that we would be encouraged, that we would see the wonder, uh, the, the, the magnificent thing it is to be a Christian, uh, someone who belongs to Jesus Christ, this great high priest. So Lord, bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start this morning by asking you a question, maybe a question that you've never been asked before. Maybe you have. The question is simply, how would you define your relationship with God? How would you describe your relationship with God? If you had to write that out in one sentence, what would that sentence say? I think uh, most commonly, you would probably start to think about, well, how do I feel about my relationship with God? Do I, uh, you, you might say, well, my relationship with God is, is kind of rocky right now. Not been a good week. Um, the old besetting sins and bad habits have popped up, and so to this morning I feel pretty distant from God. Or you might say it's been a great week, and um, I'm, I'm here this morning excited uh, to, uh, to come to church and be under the preaching of the Word and sing the songs and be with God's people. Um, I would describe my relationship with God as very healthy this morning. Well, whether you, uh, however you answer that question, whether you say that the relationship is a little weak or shaky or it's very healthy, um, in some sense it misses the wonder of the Christian's true relationship with God. Because you see, the, the, uh, the best thing about your relationship with God is, is that it isn't founded upon how you feel about it. Uh, there are certain dynamics and truths and principles of our relationship with God that we need to understand and really lay hold of and believe and, and rest in, and in doing so, are going to be tremendously encouraged. Every... Uh, there are all sorts of different relationships in our lives. We have friends, we have coworkers, we have employers, employees. There are all sorts of different relationships, family members. And all of those different relationships operate according to their own unique laws and patterns and principles. They all have their own unique dynamics. So a relationship with a business partner um, operates according to its own principles. It's, it's a relationship found on shared economic goals and agreed upon contracts. You don't need to like the guy. You don't have to be friends with the guy. You can have a good business relationship uh, because it's based on those two things, agreed upon uh, contracts and shared economic goals. Well, that, that's different from a friendship uh, you, a friend is someone that you have common interests and mutual encouragement and, and enjoy being with them. And you can't treat them like a, like a business partner. Family relationships are different yet again. And, and even within families, there are different dynamics. You relate to your spouse much differently than you relate to your children. Or at least you ought to. There should be a noticeable difference. Uh, in those relationships. And one of the keys you see to, under, uh, to happy, joyful, confident, intimate relationships is understanding the particular dynamics of that specific relationship. If you start treating your spouse as a child, it's going to harm the relationship. 
Boys and girls, you understand uh, how this works. If, um, what would happen if you started to treat your parent as though they were a sibling? They were just a brother or a sister or a, or a friend. So if your dad said to you, boys and girls, uh, honey, I want you to go feed the dog, and you sort of chuckled and said, uh, yeah, right, you go feed the dog. Boys and girls, how would that go? It wouldn't be good, would it? Um, after your, your father or mother picked themselves off the floor, maybe then there would be immediate repercussions. Uh, why is that a problem? You could say that to your brother or sister. You could say it to your friend. I'm not feeding the dog. You feed the dog. How come you can't say it to your mom or dad? Well, because they're mom, they're dad. There's, a, there's an authority relationship there. They have the right to tell you what to do, and you have the responsibility to, to respond and obey and feed the dog. But you see, you need to understand that, or, or it's going to be a really difficult childhood for you. Well, um, chapter 8 is written to people who are struggling in their relationship with God in part because they're not really grasping the unique dynamics of that relationship. These are Jewish Christians, and they come from a Jewish background. Obviously, they, are, they have been molded by the Mosaic Covenant. And we're going to see that it's, the Mosaic Covenant is different than the New Covenant. The New Covenant is not like the Mosaic Covenant. And so you see, they, they are responding to God in a way that, that they're not really grasping the glory of this relationship, and, and so they're struggling. They're, they're, it's difficult. It's hard. They feel like they're failing. You see, so often uh, we struggle in our relationships with God because we don't understand the dynamic of the relationship. We, we tend to treat it maybe, uh, I think by our legal nature, we naturally do this. We, we, we treat our relationship with God as a, a, a business relationship, a reciprocal relationship. We're going to talk about that, where um, God says, listen, I'll be good to you, and I'll bless you, and I'll save you, but I need you, you know, if you will do these things. If you will believe in me, and you'll try to be a good person, and uh, stop sinning so much, and go to church, uh, if, you, if, if, if you'll do these things, then I will do these things. And so many people, you see, then practice these things that they think they ought to be doing in order to get the, be the blessings. But it's hard and it's discouraging. There's no intimacy. There's no joy. There's no confidence in that kind of a relationship. And the writer to Hebrews, the writer of the, this book of Hebrews, is, he seems to believe that Christians, even in difficult contexts, difficult circumstances, Christians ought to be able to live in joy and to have comfort and to have assurance and confidence and peace so much so that they, are, they joyfully accept the confiscation of their property. See, the, the New Testament writers, if you just read through the Bible, you'll sense that they believe that no matter how hard life is, and none of them deny it's difficult. It's excruciating difficult. And yet they seem to believe, as Paul says in Romans 15, 13, that the God of hope can fill us with all joy and peace in believing. And so when we're in the difficult times, and when we're discouraged, and when we're down, we can, we can um, maybe lay hold of, well, maybe I'm not fully understanding what God has for me in Jesus Christ. Maybe there's something more. Maybe there's a joy and a peace 
that, that I could grasp, not by doing more, but, but simply by understanding the truth of the gospel, what God has actually done for me in Jesus Christ. And so that's what the writer is about this morning. He starts chapter 8. I just have two points this morning. The point and then a better covenant. That's it. So I don't have an outline. I think you can remember that. You look like bright people. Uh, two points. Uh, the first point is just the point. I, I, we, need, we, we just want to focus here on, the, on how he begins this chapter. The point and what we're saying is this. It's always encouraging when there's a speaker and he says, now the point I'm making, because you might have been wondering, is there a point at all? And uh, the writer gets right to it. There is something here that I want you to see. I want you to pay attention. This is, this is something to take note of. If, if you're taking notes, get your pencil ready. This stuff, this stuff matters. Now, what is the point? What is he trying to say? Well, he's, he's, he's going to bring to a conclusion what he's been talking about um, in chapter 7. Remember, talking about the, the, uh, the fact that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not like the Aaronic priesthood. Um, he lives forever. He uh, does not have to go and make sacrifices over and over and over again. He sacrifices his, himself once for all, which accomplishes the work of redemption. Um, we need such a priest, he says in the end of verse 7. We, it is fitting, verse 26, that we should have such a high priest who's holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted from the heavens. We need more than just what the Aaronic priest can do. We need someone who can actually make us right with God. That's what, we're, that's what we need as sinners. And, uh, and so he says the point we're, that we're, we're making here is we have such a high priest. He's not just talking uh, esoteric theology and sort of a random spiritual truths. When he's talking about Jesus as uh, our priest after the order of Melchizedek, now he wants to get to the point we have such a priest. That's what it means to be a Christian. And this priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he wants us to understand the point here that we have such a priest, and he is he's in place. He's, he's carrying out his ministry where the ministry needs to happen. It needs to happen in the presence of God. Notice the emphasis on Christ as he is in heaven. His ministry is in heaven. Uh, verse 1, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Verse 2, he's a minister in the true tent. The tent that the Lord set up. And he, and he, and he points out the, the, the tabernacle that God <clears throat> told Moses to build, that was a replica. It's a shadow. It's a copy. Well, a copy only works if there's a reality it corresponds to. And that, of course, being the heavenly tabernacle where God dwells. So verse 2, Jesus ministers in that, the true tabernacle, the true tent. Verse 4, Jesus is not on earth. Jesus is carrying out his ministry in heaven. The point that Barnabas is, or whoever wrote this is making, Jesus carries out his ministry, his priesthood in heaven. Now, why is that a big deal? Because it's the only religion on the face of planet Earth that can say that. 
There's just not, there's not another religion in the world that, that can say this. This is what sets Christianity apart from everything else, even from Old Testament religions. You see, all the religions of the world have their priests, their appointed men, whether uh, even secularists have their priests and humanists, the people that they look to and rely on to, to teach them the truth, to guide them in, in the right path, to help them live um, in relation to whatever high, higher being or to find fullness of life in any way. Every religion has priests. But, but all the priests of the world are carrying out their ministry in the world. They're just doing their thing in their, in their huts or their ornate temples or tabernacles or in the classroom. But, but that's where they do their work. That's where they do their ministry. Well, you see, if your ultimate problem, your ultimate issue in your life is how can I be made right with God who dwells in heaven? There's no earthly priest that can help you. He's just doing what he does in his, in his, uh, in his own little sphere, his own realm. But you see, the writer says, our priest is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the majesty. There's only one priest in all the history of mankind who carries out his work in the very presence of God. That's awesome. That's awesome. You see, friends, there is a true tent in the heavens, a real tabernacle where, where God dwells in all of his holiness, his righteousness, his majesty. And there really is a place where God is seated on his holy throne, a place where sinners one day will have to come. It's appointed unto every man once to die, then to face judgment. And in that place, you see, the writer is saying, in that place there is a real priest, a holy, innocent, appointed priest who is able to reconcile the sinner with the holy God. And that priest's name is Jesus. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Isn't that wonderful? There's one mediator between God and man. Praise God, there's a mediator his name is Jesus, and he can save the absolute worst to the uttermost. That's the point. That's the point. Now, how does he do this? Well, the writer says he does it by mediating a better covenant based on better promises. So he moves in verse 6 um, from the place where Christ carries out his ministry. Now he moves to speaking about the nature of this ministry. Why is it better? Why is there hope here? Why is there assurance here? Well, verse 6, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And he says if the first covenant had been faultless, it wouldn't have been replaced. If the first covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and strength, uh, that thou shalt uh, worship the Lord and him alone, you shall obey your parents and keep the Sabbath and not murder, not commit adultery, and don't covet and don't steal. If, uh, and, and all the, the covenant that goes around that, you see all the, all the uh, principles um, of, wash, of cleanliness, washings, and, uh, and uh, sacrifices, specific, specifically thinking about the, the sacrificial system here. 
The writer's saying if that, if that priesthood and that system, that ceremonial, religious, sacrificial system, if that had actually been able to make sinners right with God, that would have been the, that would have been the plan until Jesus comes back, until God wraps up history. But it wasn't sufficient. Why not? It was God's plan. How could it not be sufficient? Well, it wasn't sufficient because human sin, being what it is, cannot be removed by sacrificing animals. Now, God knew this, of course, so why did he put it in place? Well, he puts it in place to show us that we have to have a priest like Jesus. Human priests aren't going to be able to accomplish it. And so the, the writer here shows them that the old is being replaced by a new. And new doesn't mean here just chronologically sequential. It means better. A better covenant. Why is it better? Because it's founded upon better promises. It's not like the old covenant. He says that very clearly, verse 8 and 9. As he quotes from Jeremiah 31, this wonderful promise that God gives to Old Testament Israel, it's not like there's going to be a new covenant. Now, what's the difference? Well, at the heart of the difference is the, the different dynamic. You see, the, the Old Testament covenant is based on a principle of reciprocity. It's a big word, um, but it's, it's fairly simple. It just means I will if you will. Uh, it's how we tend to do our relationships. I will if you will. Um, I will be nice to you if you're nice to me. Many of us do. We naturally tend to do marriage this way. All right? I will love you, and I will honor you and be nice to you as long as you are loving me and you're kind back to me. Those are the terms, you see, of the relationship, even when they're not spoken. It's sort of tit for tat. I will if you will. But, but, but that has devastating effects on the relationship. It makes the intimacy very, very shallow. I mean, who wants to really be vulnerable and open in that sort of I will if you will environment? And, and it makes the intimacy very fragile because what happens if they don't? Well, then the intimacy fails. The relationship fails. But you see, what if you change the terms? What if your spouse said to you, I promise to love you and honor you and cherish you for the rest of my life without regard to reciprocation. I promise to love you even when you aren't lovable. I promise to be kind to you even when you're not kind. I promise to bless you even when you don't deserve to be blessed. I will even if you don't. What if that were the terms? Now just to remind you, those actually are the terms. It's what you promised when you stood up in front of a church someplace and said, I do. There's no reciprocity in the marriage vows, right? I promise to love and honor you and cherish you if you love and honor and cherish me. Nobody says that. And well, they shouldn't. It's not supposed to be that kind of a relationship. It's supposed to be, you see, the, it's, it's supposed to be I will even if you don't. Because that kind of relationship, you see, opens the doors to real intimacy and to confidence and joy. Well, what does that have to do with our text? Remember, these are Jewish Christians who've grown up under the Mosaic Covenant. And, and the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of reciprocity. Uh, where God says, you can read Leviticus 26 is maybe one of the clearest examples of this. 
Uh, if you walk in my statutes, God says, and the whole chapter is full of this, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commands and do them, then I will give you rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall bear their fruit, yield their fruit, and you will go out and you'll defeat your enemies and you'll be healthy and you're going to have children and, and I will be your God and you will be my people. If you walk in my statutes. And then in verse 14, but if you will not listen to me, and if you do not do all these commandments, all of them, right? If you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And it goes on and lists horrible things. I will visit you with panic and with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it and your enemies are going to run over you. And he just goes on and on. If you walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you. That's what God says. If you walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you. It's a, it's a principle of reciprocity. Now, there's elements of grace, obviously, in the Old Testament covenant, God providing priests where they could come and confess their sin and they could repent. And God graciously so often refrains from bringing on them the judgment that they deserve. He's so patient and long-suffering. He's slow to anger, abounding in love, but the underlying fundamental dynamic of the Old Covenant is reciprocity. And so God says here in verse 9, quoting from Jeremiah 31, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so, see, there's the reciprocity, they did not, and so, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, uh, friends, many, we tend, by virtue of our sinful legal nature, but by the way we do human relationships, we tend to treat God as though we are in a reciprocal relationship with God, which either is going to bring pride in your life if you think you're doing quite well, and then you'll have no sense of a need for God and so not love Him and commune with Him, or it's going to create despair where you realize you're just failing. And that's going to break the intimacy in the sense of, of, of communion with God and joy in God. The, the New Testament Christians here are struggling with these things. But see, and maybe you are this morning, you, 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 you just find the Christian life to be hard. It's just hard. And, and whatever joy and peace and assurance and comfort and confidence, uh, it just doesn't seem like you've been able to really get hold of those things. And either you just, you've become cynical and you, you keep doing it because it does seem to be correct um, or you're, you're maybe even thinking about giving up. It's, it's just not worth it. And maybe you gave up already. And you're just waiting for the opportunity to walk away uh, without consequences. That could be. Well, the writer here, the Holy Spirit through the writer has good news for you. You've been, you've been living under the wrong covenant you don't understand the relationship. Jesus has come to establish a new covenant. Verse 6, the covenant Jesus mediates uh, is better because it's enacted on better promises. 
For this is the covenant, God says, I will make with the house of Israel, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will remember their iniquities, and I will, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now notice the difference. This is not I will if you will. There's nothing reciprocal in this covenant. It's, it's all based on God's initiative and God's doing. So it's, it's not I will if you will. It is not even I will even if you don't. This is I will and they shall. I will and they shall. Do you see why Jesus is able to save to the uttermost? It's because, you see, God has taken your salvation as his own divine project. He promises to create a new desire. Do you find, you just, do you find that you often just have a dead heart? And the truth is, you like your sin, you like you're uh, serving yourself. You don't like dying to self. You don't like saying no to your pet sins. You don't really like to worship. You don't like to read your Bible. You don't enjoy prayer. Is that you? It's been me. So how do you fix that? Just keep faking it? No, you go and you, you, you say to God, Lord, you, you tell me that you are able to do this. You're able to give me a new heart. God, I want that heart. And I'm going to ask for that heart. I'm going to beg you, Lord, change my heart. Write your law on my, on my heart and mind so that I delight to do your will. So that I love to worship and I love to open my Bible and I love dying to self. It's hard and I don't do it very well, but it's what I want to do. I want to say no to my besetting sin. I want to, I want to see that thing buried and dead. I want, I hunger for holiness. Isn't, isn't that what you want? And if you don't want it, you see, then you can pray to God who's able to change your heart. You don't have to keep faking it. God is able and promises to write his law, his good ways on your heart. God promises to bind you to himself so there's union and communion. I will be their God and they will be my people. A real relationship between a living God and the creatures of his hand so that when you talk about God, it's not just a word. It is a being, it's a person who's glorious and, and he's, who's terrifying and yet altogether lovely and desirable. And you, be, you, can, you can begin to, to sense that there's a way that you, you could be glad in your king. And that this God has loved you and created you, knows you, and he's rescued you in Jesus Christ and he, he has bound himself to you to make you his own. You see, that's what he's talking about when he promises that they're not going to be saying, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. They're all going to know me. 
From the least of them to the greatest, from the little child to the oldest saint, from the, the, the newest believer to the most veteran churchgoer, they will all know me. In other words, the Holy Spirit will come and just open the eyes. And there will be spiritual understanding. There will be a, a grasp of the reality of God. You don't get a grasp of the reality of God apart from the Holy Spirit. Not, not the God of Scripture, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is, is, is he's faithful to His covenant, who loves to glorify His name by rescuing sinners. You, you don't get that sense without the Spirit. God says, that's what will happen. That's what I'll do. And he does it through his son, doesn't he? For God, who said, let there be light, has shown into our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you can say, well, that's true, Pastor, but you don't know about my sin. What about my, my sin, my, the, the lies I tell, the adulteries I've committed, the secret addiction the true guilt, the actual shame, what about, what about that? Well, listen to the Lord. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's God's promise. From God's mouth, God who cannot lie, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, your iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, friend, the door is so wide open for you to have a real relationship with this God. Because when you sin, you see, when, when, we, when we fail in the, in the principle of reciprocity, we're probably tempted to try to make it up, try to do better for a while before we come back to the Lord, or we're afraid that, that God will just at some point be done with us. Well, God says, I will, I will be merciful towards your iniquities. Your friends might forsake you if they knew the real you. Your spouse might forsake you. Your parents might even forsake you. But the Lord will never forsake you. Psalm 27.10. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. You see, friends, as long as God's promises are based upon his own power and his commitment, you see, we're saved this is not a reciprocal relationship. This is a unilateral provision where God says, I will and you shall. And as long then as his word, his promise to you is, is rooted in his own purposes that cannot change and, and established by the, the righteousness and the, the priestly work of Jesus Christ who brought, he had something to offer, didn't he, when he walked into that eternal temple, that heavenly tabernacle. He had something to bring. His own crucified body and his own poured out blood, his own obedient life, obedient even unto death. And that is what he brings into that temple, that most holy place in the presence of his father. And his father rejoices to forgive sinners on the basis of his work. That's the gospel. Let me wrap up with two things. First, is this, is this the kind of relationship that you have with God? A relationship based upon a better covenant with better promises? Uh, if you are unconverted this morning, that means uh, that you, you, just, you don't really know these things and truth be told, maybe you don't really care about them. You're not interested in church, you're not interested in religion, uh, and you maybe have been here all your life. But if, but if you're unconverted, friend, this, this is God's invitation 
to you to enter a real relationship with a real God unlike anything that you've known. And, and it's, it's a challenge to you as well. You see, because there is a real God and there is a real temple and there really is a throne of judgment that you really will have to face, it is not a Sunday school story. And I don't care how, how, how sinful you've been, I don't think how cool you think you are. It doesn't matter. You will stand there. And so will Dale Van Dyke. And the issue, friend, at that moment, you see, is what will be done with you forever? Forever. What will be done with your sin? And the key to that question will be what have you done with Christ? What did you do with Jesus? You can't just ignore it. You can't just shrug it off. You can't just take refuge that somehow it'll work out. It won't work out, I promise you. Unless you come to Christ. And that's you personally on your knees before this Jesus, confessing your sin and receiving this redemption. And here's the beauty of it. If you do that, if you just receive, not work, not merit, not do better, try harder. If you receive Jesus Christ as your high priest, you are promised all of these blessings forever. Forever. And that means then that if you are a Christian this morning, but a discouraged Christian, maybe feeling like a failure as a Christian, and it's just been hard, I want you to just, just hear again the good news of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Let, let the wonder of this lift your eyes from the hard circumstances you find yourself in. God, friend, has, has loved you with such a great love that he gave his own son, Jesus Christ, not just to save you and, and so you don't have to go to hell. He loved you and gave you to Jesus Christ so he could absolutely remake you into the likeness of Christ so that the glory and honor of Christ could, could, could be yours. He, he puts Jesus, you see, on, uh, under the terms of the reciprocal covenant. He put Jesus under the terms of the law and, and then laid our sin all of our failure on his son and then turned his face away exactly as he said he would do. And in that act, God is able to forgive you. God is able and willing and joyful to be your God and to make you his people forever and ever. And God is able and willing to write his law on your heart and fill you with a knowledge of the Lord that becomes truly the, the, the greatest treasure of your life. And then no matter what the circumstances are, as you grow in your understanding of what God is to you and for you in Jesus Christ, you're going to find that there's joy and there's peace and there's comfort, and there's purpose, even in the midst of great difficulty. And so I just call you, the word calls you to enter into that. Enter into that. Pursue that. Don't settle for your cynicism. Don't settle for just focusing on your circumstances. Don't settle for a, a faith that is very weak and easily shaken. Press on. Come, let us press on to know the Lord. 
so that, that these things become real to us and precious to us and functional and the foundation of our life. It's all there for us, friends. This is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ as he's called us into this new, beautiful covenant based on glorious promises and all accomplished by our mediator, our Jesus, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's bow together in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you that we can pray according to your promises. Lord, you know every heart in this room again this morning. And you know the unbelief and the cynicism. You know the fear, the shame, the guilt. Father, all of it is known to you. Lord, we can't change our own hearts, but you can. I pray for, Lord, those here this morning who truth be told, have no heart for God. They, they know it's true, they just don't, they don't care. Or they maybe have questions if it's true. But either way, Lord, they're, they're not walking in faith today. They, there's not a love for Christ. There's not a hunger for holiness. There's apathy, there's spiritual deadness. Lord, they're here right now. And I pray that you'd have mercy and grace. You are the God who raises the dead and gives eyes to the blind. Father, I pray that we could see the Holy Spirit give a knowledge of God that would bring those who today are unconverted into the light of the gospel. And so, Lord, um, I pray you would accomplish that work. I pray for those, Lord, who do believe, and yet it's so hard. And the circumstances overwhelm us. And we just need to see our Savior again and all that he promises to us. We need to see again that we are loved with an everlasting love. We need to believe that the circumstances are not an accident or because we took a wrong turn. And even if we're being disciplined, it's for our, it's for our good because you love us so much. And we need to be reminded of these things again today that you've begun a work that will end one day in glory in the presence of Jesus and you'll never give up on it. You'll never give up on us. And so Lord, we can then live with hope and joy and peace even in hard circumstances. I pray that you give us that for our blessing, uh, for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.